Well, welcome again to the Novice to Office podcast. I'm your armchair public official, Trey Bant. Thanks so much again for tuning in. Uh, we had a slight break while I went and made a couple of the payments on my dentist's Audi, uh, but we're good. We are back. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our quick special edition we did last week. I should really call those special sessions uh, the special edition on the U.S. speakership. Uh, lots going on these days, uh, but there always is. Uh, today is part one of a couple episodes where I talk about U.S. cities, their government, that is. Um, American cities are a limitless topic, but we're only talking about their governing structure uh, and associated politics. And that, and that uh, quite succinctly <laughs> over the next two episodes. Uh, and next episode, we'll talk about special districts that support cities. Um, that subject is worse than the dentist chair, but I got to do it, but it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Uh, cities in America aren't like those around the world for one simple reason. They are created by law at the risk of sounding like I'm oversimplifying. Yes, of course, laws in some form govern every city on the planet, but in American cities, there are clear process lines of a city's government activities that cannot begin without a legal anchor. In other words, a city in American uh, in America can't do its thing without having a bona fide legal status, same as counties and all the things we talked about last week or two weeks ago. Uh, and this wasn't really how cities began elsewhere in the world. That said, uh, cities, however, begin as real estate. Uh, we talked about the first colonies and what they called in the 17th century plantations that means a community centered around agriculture, farming by both free people and not. Um, well, I have to get technical for a second. Today, we take the idea of private property, okay, the lot lines for our houses or whatever, for our lot, for granted. We kind of think the idea goes back to the Garden of Eden or to you know some primal decision, but that's not the case. Um, when it comes to human farming or property use throughout human history, especially in Europe, economic systems have always been people-based, not property-based, not paper-based, I guess. Um, in Europe, what they would do is they were part of some hierarchical system where the obligations of one person were farmed on up the line from peasant to king. And, and the group, the land would be farmed communally, okay? The, the good land would go to the Lord or, or the, you know, the, the king or whatever. And then the common lands were called the commons were farmed by the regular people. Um, and this is what's called feudalism. Okay. A people, a group of people subject to a Lord and the people would live in a little village of buildings that they didn't own. And they would work that guy's land or, or ladies land and on up the line. So when the English came to North America, where there were no lords actually assigned to the land, remember that the people were working as part of chartered companies, okay, businesses really. They set up, they set up kind of a facsimile of the manor within the company plantation. Now the, the Puritans and Quakers differed a little bit on this, but for the most part, uh, these gatherings of people would have to figure out something else. Um, so the old way of just kind of communal farming broke down over here in America because not everyone who came were farmers, uh, and some were better at it than others. And so the low, the colonial leaders motivated by profit, but also a desire not to starve, 
decided to apply a new, newer legal concept that the English had started to experiment with during the 1500s, the principle of enclosure. And again, to be brief, enclosure means walling off land for personal production. Now, originally, of course, that was the Lord of the Manor. Uh, It created social upheaval in Europe, but in America, the idea of enclosure where there was no pre-existing hierarchy was easier to adapt to allow individuals to take over enclosed sections of land and serve their self-interest to produce. Uh, And the ones who were good at farming or tobacco production or whatever, they did well. And then the other people would be day laborers or whatever, or they'd stay in the town, uh, in the emerging town, and and they would develop crafts and trades. Um, And so then the city was born, okay, a community of individuals. There's no more group responsibility for production. An individual was the driver of production uh, with an enclosure, however form that took. Uh, and the principle of enclosure was applied to structures and town lots or maybe just a plantation entirely. And once this happened, the organization of real estate tied legally to an individual, the priorities of government, especially in North America, they shifted from simply providing security to uh, mediating threats or, uh, and, and protecting against threats to mediating disputes. So now you need clerks and you need property protection, fire protection, sheriffs. Uh, as the population around these urban clusters grew, you would need water needs. You'd have to have waste disposal, public health. Now, of course, a lot of this happened gradually, but I think you can see where I'm going. Perhaps the best example of managing urban development from the start was the creation of the city of Philadelphia in the late 17th century. Uh, The area of Pennsylvania between the Delaware and the Schuylkill rivers was already identified as prime real estate by Europeans. And and it was through William Penn, remember, who founded Pennsylvania through his charter that he thought this could be a shining city in the wilderness. And he actually sent technicians and leadership to this area, this confluence of the rivers, and laid out a grid plan that would accommodate houses each on individual plots. Uh, He applied enclosure to urban planning really in a cutting-edge way, way before other people had. Um, uh, Penn had experienced the Great London Fire of 1666, and so when he founded his city and its grid, he wanted a place that wouldn't become this uh, crammed-together box of kindling. So Penn wanted his city laid out with housing lots that would keep green space between them. Uh, and he, he had parks also in his, he called it his town. Uh, and the Quakers were also followers of Christ, and they believed they were here to usher in the new kingdom. And so Penn, he was a big believer that human material improvements that supported healthy spirituality was important. And this was his approach to urban planning. Um uh, He was also a massive believer in religious tolerance. He hated what happened to his own faith tradition, and he didn't want that to happen uh, in his new colony. So Penn advertised this liberalism of religious tolerance, we'll call it, uh, when he promoted Pennsylvania across Europe. Uh, Consequently, immigrants of all types of small, mostly Protestant kind of counter-religious traditions, we'll say, uh, they flocked to Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. And the place boomed. And along the Schuylkill, some of the best farmland in North America was developed. And it became the breadbasket that fed Philadelphia. Um, 
the Quakers and their emphasis on inner peace and being connected with the God within uh, required a serious commitment to personal integrity. And as a result, daily practical relationships in business were very trustworthy, transparent, and efficient. Uh, and they promoted this communal integrity uh, amongst uh, during Philadelphia's growth amongst all the people. Uh, and the place needed no police force. Uh, and this code of morality enforced by the Quakers uh, made the place very desirable to live. Uh, you didn't need a police force because everyone was honest. And if you were struggling financially, everyone was charitable. Uh, that also staved off poverty and decay. Um, so again, Philadelphia was booming and very thriving as a result of all this. And it, it being in the middle of the colonies, it became the hub, unquestioned hub of the Crown's North American holdings. Uh, the wealth combined with thrift supported cultural growth and innovation for Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin chose the city to start out in life in the 1720s. Uh, Franklin was from Boston. Uh, his family were Puritans, and, and Frank, or they were Puritans, uh, and he was this tech-savvy guy, and it would be like someone moving to Silicon Valley today. And Franklin tackled the challenges of, ur of urban life. Uh, he created the firefighting company as opposed to just volunteers. Uh, he helped found Philadelphia's first hospital. He was at the center of Philadelphia's publishing industry and its press establishment. In uh, the middle of the colonies, uh, Franklin created postal operations, and he came up with logistics for all that and uh, communications. And these would be uh, templates for the new United States uh, under his leadership. Uh, returning to William Penn, he, he, had, he actually spent a lot of time in England, so he had to govern his colony from afar. Uh, using those assemblies we talked about way back in episode two. But he was something of a regulation lover, I guess kind of how his faith was going, his faith tradition. So one day when he visited Philadelphia, he granted a sub-charter to the city leadership for administering various activities. And I, I'm calling it a sub-charter because he was the main royal charter holder for all of Pennsylvania, okay, granted by the king. But in doing this, he created the sub-charter and the city charter for Philadelphia. And that's what a city charter is. It's a way to empower a community to enact laws in addition to the overarching laws of the, of the state or the, the colony back then. After the American Revolution, the charter became the primary way cities organized, both great and small. Uh, and it, it's true that charter means different things across the states. They're, it's not quite the same in every state. Uh, but the main principle it has is what they call home rule. And probably the best example of home rule is, for example, regulating the sale of alcohol. Home rule doesn't necessarily prohibit drinking alcohol. It just says you can't sell it in the city. Um, and that's what home rule and that's what ordinances are allowed to do um, is uh, kind of deal with more practical issues. Um, and the over... Uh, Time, the courts and lawmakers of all, at all levels have, historic, have historically seen uh, home rule as constitutional through local regulation. Uh, that's not to say there still aren't issues. Today, plastic bags uh, can create a home rule issue. So smoking a joint in public, <laughs> let alone at all. <laughs> all. All these things are often a source of controversy. 
But in Penn's Philadelphia and elsewhere in the emerging states, uh, the charter was adopted, and those who led these communities that were chartered were called counselors or aldermen. Uh, today we call them councilmen or councilwomen, just a council. Uh, the aldermen and the word mayor, for that matter, they're old English words. And aldermen, you know, you, you see here, uh, elder man and mayor, mayor, elder, major elder man. I mean, I think you see what I did, did there. But I, we don't know why Americans went with councilman or counselor other than alderman sounds kind of stodgy. So what do all these uh, councilmen and women do when they get together? I will tell you after my shameless plug. Are you ready to become a change agent in your community? Are you tired of the same old people running your local government? Well, your country needs you in office now more than ever. My name is Trey Bam, and I have a lifetime of experience in politics and government. I have either managed or supported more than three dozen campaigns. I want you to get elected in your community and I can train you with my new innovative online course, Novice to Office. Novice to Office instructs the beginning candidate in everything they need to know to win their election. That's right. I condense the expertise and knowledge used by political professionals and make it available to you. My course will teach you the three core concepts of campaigning you can use to be successful at winning your election. If running for office is something you've thought about, but the how-to seems vague or intimidating, Novice to Office takes away the mystery. In my course, you'll learn how to use social media to reach those likely to vote in your election. You'll be provided with a draft budget and learn the basics of fundraising. You'll be able to organize a strong and effective get-out-the-vote effort, and I will take the information you provide and craft a message that can be tailored for any occasion. My course also includes a 30-minute one-on-one consultation about delivering your message. And we'll also discuss what's unique about your campaign. That's two hours of professional guidance. Using my approach, 80% of my clients either won their election outright or made the runoff, sometimes having never even set foot in the public square. There's no reason state-of-the-art political consulting should only be available to those who can raise the most money. Novice to Office makes consulting that normally costs thousands of dollars available for less than $500. The course, its templates, all upgrades, and discounts on additional consulting and future modules will be yours for a lifetime. Click the link below or sign up at novicetooffice.com and become a change agent for your family, your neighbors, and your community. That's novicetooffice.com. My name is Trey Bam, and I wholeheartedly approve this message. We are back. We're talking about American cities and their government, and we've laid out how we got from small groups and communities of settlers to actual city councils. So what do councils do all day? Well, in America, especially after the revolution and its uh, sacrosanct elevation of representative volunteer-based democracy, uh, city councils were viewed as kind of altruistic activities. They were places where you served out of your own pop, out of your own pocket. They didn't want people getting rid of, getting rich off the people. Uh, the, the same for the mayor. And given Americans' general antipathy for government, the mayor was often viewed simply as ceremonial. They didn't want him having a lot of power. 
So in many cities, the mayor not only had little power over ordinances or even operations of the city, he often had no vote at all on a council or could only break a tie. Uh, later, they would hire professionals called a city manager to do those things who couldn't vote. Um, but councilors vote on issues relating to safety and quality of life. Over time, they took over firefighting activities, firefighting companies. Uh, in, in time, they had to create police departments as cities grew and a less desirable element would come in. Uh, and, and they would do this independent of a sheriff or a constable uh, who were often stretched thin trying to police a, you know, a, a larger geographic area. Um, city councils, of course, had to consider transportation and infrastructure. In early American history, believe it or not, roads and sewer lines were just not tended to. These core aspects of modern living, which we take so much for granted, were given a low, low, low priority. Uh, in Washington, D.C., for example, for decades, human and storm waste was simply tossed out the window and it all flowed into these a few filthy unused canals or, or some of the used canals, too. Um, in many American cities, livestock roamed the streets well into the 19th century, which, of course, causes disease. Um, but urban planners later on, picking up Benjamin Franklin's mantle, began to tackle these issues and infrastructure began to develop around the citizens. Um, all of this costs money, of course, and it would follow the city council to deal with it. Uh, city councils, of course, would then levy taxes, uh, empowered by their states. Remember, uh, cities derive their power from the states, like the counties and parishes we talked about last week. Uh, but this would create an extra dimension of power between the city and the state capital. Of course, always opportunities for graft and corruption. Um, the size of cities would put pressure on the city, the simple city council over time. Uh, some eventually began to call for the mayor to be stronger because uh, theoretically that guy can get things done. So today the model of the city called the strong mayor model is basically means a mayor that has veto power over the council people. So that's what strong mayor means, a lot like a legislative arrangement. Um, most major U.S. cities have a strong mayor, but uh, actually Austin down here that's closing in on being the 10th largest city almost in the U.S., they tried to vote for strong mayor and were, were rejected, which was interesting. Um, large urban centers, of course, develop many needs, and when combined with America's individualism, innovation, and tradition of dissent and, and just want things to be better over here, uh, the Americans would develop special districts that would uh, be created alongside and within urban centers. And we'll talk more about, about those uh, next week. Um, uh, thanks again for watching. Don't forget to like, subscribe. Uh, if you have thoughts about your comments or you just want to let us know where you're watching from, or listening from, uh, put it in the comments, your city. Until next week, keep it free. <laughs>